Please join me as I read the text for Pastor John's sermon this morning. It's found in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Father, my heart's desire now this morning is that as we contemplate Paul's anguish for his kinsmen according to the flesh, our sorrow would increase for our family members who don't know Christ and for our neighbors and fellow students and colleagues who don't know Christ and who are accursed and cut off from him unless they believe. And I pray, Father, that those who are without Christ downtown and in this room would feel rising in them a sense of fear that they are accursed and cut off from Christ and that that fear would grow into hope in Christ as the one who became a curse for us so that our sins might be forgiven, his righteousness might become ours and we might be free to live forever with him in joy. Lord, help me to speak to those two great ends. Our sorrow for the lost and the lost finding hope in Christ. In his name I pray, amen. There is a sad irony to the seeming successes of many Christian churches and schools. And the irony is this. The more you adjust or obscure biblical doctrine in order to make Christian reality acceptable to unbelievers, the less Christian reality there is when they arrive. Which means that the looks of success are not always success. Many times numbers are very deceiving if you don't pay attention to the price paid to get them. 
If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you do not get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. That is not evangelism, that is deception. One of the results of this kind of success is that sooner or later the world wakes up to the fact that they already have what you're offering them. Because you have so diluted it, there's no difference anymore. If you adjust your doctrine to fit the world in order to attract the world, sooner or later they realize they already have what you offer. In fact, they have it more excitingly than you offer it on television. That was the story of many mainline Protestant churches in Europe and America in the last century. Adjust your doctrine or just minimize your doctrine. And in the very process of attracting all those people who would stumble over your doctrine, you lose the very thing that would give them life and freedom. Many observers today are noting that what the liberal, mainline, Protestant churches have done for 60 to 80 years, evangelical churches now are beginning to do. For example, Steve Bruce, in his book, God is Dead, Secularization in the West, says... The mainstream Christian churches are declining in popularity and the conservative Protestant churches are losing their doctrinal and behavioral distinctiveness. You can grow for a while like that, maybe 50 years, and then death. There are thousands of pastors today. I was reminded of this in an email this week I got from a man in a large city outside this state. There are thousands of pastors and churches that do not think clear biblical doctrinal views are vital to the church or to the believer. They are indifferent to clear, distinct Doctrinal views of God, of the cross, of Christ, of the nature of salvation, of the Christian life. They believe it is possible to grow a healthy church while leaving the people with few and fuzzy thoughts about what God is like. But mark this, ignorance does not remain ignorance. The cavity created by ignorance is always filled with falsehood. Edward Norman wrote a book published this year called Secularization, New Century Theology, in which he goes right to the problem of what is substituted when doctrine goes. This is what he says. Christianity is not being rejected in modern society. What is causing the decline of public support for the church is the insistence of church leaders themselves in representing secular enthusiasm for humanity as core Christianity. 
Say it again. What's being rejected is not full-blooded Christianity with contours and distinctions and edges so that you can tell the portrait of the God you're looking at. What is being rejected is the church leaders who insist on saying that secular enthusiasm for relationships and humanity is core Christianity. That's his opinion as to what is being rejected. At first, the world is drawn to this. And then they wake up. Why should I go to this? Romans 9 is a great antidote against such diseases in the church. I once heard a denominational official say to a young pastor, or rather the young pastor told me this, I didn't hear it myself, he told me this. He said, asking this denominational official for counsel on how to manage Romans 9, how to preach Romans 9, and the denominational official said, oh, I think it's possible to preach Romans 9 without letting the people know what you think. That's a denomination, an official, and it trickles down, believe me, it trickles down. I think it's possible to avoid doctrine. I think it's possible to obscure the picture of God in this chapter. In order to keep highlighting the things that you know bring people. We're in a bad way in American evangelicalism across the land. Don't let numbers deceive you. Don't let these numbers deceive you. Downtown or here. Numbers are no proof of anything. They may mean one thing. They may mean another. We always pray that they mean something good, but not necessarily. Let's focus on verses 1 to 3. This chapter is not rooted in enthusiasm for humanity. This chapter is rooted in the staggering, shocking, deeply satisfying sovereignty of God. And my prayer is that we will see God for who he really is in this chapter, with all of the jagged peaks and fathomless deeps, and that his grace will be powerful to draw many here, not to be made much of, but to make much of God. Verses 1 to 3 are about Paul's grief over the Jewish nation, which as a whole is accursed and cut off from Christ. I'm going to share four things the cause of Paul's anguish, the intensity of Paul's anguish, the authenticity of Paul's anguish, and the fruit of Paul's anguish over the lostness of Israel. Number one, the cause of Paul's anguish. Let's read verse three. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsman according to the flesh. This means that Paul's kindred, according to the flesh, that is, the Jews, 
are accursed and cut off from Christ. He doesn't say it outright, does he? He softens the statement by saying it in connection to his pain over it. I'm in anguish. I wish that I could take their place. They are accursed and cut off from Christ. The reality is unmistakable. They are on their way to hell under the judgment of God. The word accursed here is anathema in Greek. Anathema in Greek. Anathema is translated in 1 Corinthians 16.22 like this. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be cursed. Anathema. Now, why are they anathema? Why are they accursed and cut off from Christ? Paul gives two answers to this question. One is that they have stumbled over Christ and rejected him as Messiah and righteousness. And the other is that God's covenant promise did not guarantee the salvation of every Jew and does not secure all Israel physically as all Israel spiritually. Verse 6, all Israel is not Israel. Let's see the first answer mainly. The other one will come later. Romans 9, verse 30. This is Paul's explanation of why he's so broken and grieving about his kinsmen. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. So it's all about chapters 1 to 8 here. The Gentiles have trusted Christ. They have become righteous with the righteousness of Christ by faith. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They didn't understand where it was all pointing. They didn't grasp what it was all aiming at. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him, Jesus, will not be disappointed. So Paul pictures Christ as the righteousness that the law was pointing toward. The Gentiles came along. They didn't even know about the law, most of them. And they saw Christ. They embraced Christ to whom the law was pointing. And they got everything that the law was designed to do, namely righteousness by faith in him. And the Jews, knowing the law, didn't see what it was pointing to. And when he came, they stumbled over him. And they wanted rather to do it by works instead of by faith in the Messiah. And therefore, they are cursed and cut off from Christ. He says it again. Look at chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. I testify about them, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God. But it is not in accordance with knowledge. Now, let me just pause there and back up to my introduction. If you ever needed a verse 
To say that right thinking about God and Christ and righteousness and faith and works was important. This is it. You think passion is enough? They're going to hell with a passion for God. Because they don't understand God. And Christ. And cross. And righteousness. And faith. Are you a teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus said to Nicodemus, and will he not say it to many pastors? Are you a teacher in the church and you don't teach your people these things? You think doctrine is going to drive people away? What do you invite them to, pray tell? How will all the passion of your worship music ever get them to heaven? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. For not knowing. You see how deadly that is? Not knowing about God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For. Now I'm going to give you a strict word by word literal translation here. Of verse 4. For the goal or the end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. They didn't didn't get it. He presented himself, he offered himself, he fulfilled all righteousness for them, he laid themselves down, he commended himself as Messiah and King and Lord and Savior and substitute, a ransom for many, he said to them. And they crucified him. We crucified him. And therefore we are cursed and cut off from Christ unless we change our minds and our hearts and we receive our Lord, Messiah, righteousness, curse bearer. So why are they cursed? Galatians 3.13 relates Christ to the curse like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let let that land on you this morning. If you're here without Christ, and you are hearing this not as one who should be aggrieved for a lost loved one, but you're the lost loved one, hear this hope, would you? Read it again, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became our sin, he became our curse, he became our righteousness. Christ is here this morning offering himself to all who will have him as their sin bearer, their curse substitute, and their righteousness. If you will, in your heart, reach out and embrace him as your Lord, your Savior, your treasure, your substitute. You don't have to be accursed and cut off from Christ anymore. And your loved ones who have been praying for you all these years will not grieve anymore. I said there was another answer to why they are cursed and cut off from Christ. I'm going to save it. 
for, uh, what, three weeks from now. Next week, I'm going to take verses 4 and 5. The week after that, we're going to do Thanksgiving together down at the Civic Center. The week after that, we move into the second answer, namely election. So we save that this morning and just deal with what we have here in these verses. My second point is this. Not only do we have the cause of Paul's anguish in their curse, but we have the intensity of Paul's anguish. So that's our second point, the intensity of Paul's anguish. I get it from verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Paul reaches about as far as you can reach in these verses to prove that he loves them. And he is heartbroken over them. He says... I could wish to be separated from Christ and accursed. That little phrase, I could wish, I could wish, is, is a good translation. Almost all the versions translate it that way. I could wish. Why does it say it that way? The reason is that he stands, as it were, on the brink of damnation ready to throw himself in if Israel could be saved, and he can't do it. It's not possible. It's not possible because God has not designed a world in which an act of love can be damned. That is not the world that exists. The old Puritans argued about whether... An ordination candidate should be asked the question, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? Jonathan Edwards utterly repudiated that question, and so do I. It's a wrong question, because it's a question that can only be answered in a world that does not exist. Nowhere has God ever designed a world in which such a thought can be accomplished. God has designed a world not in which acts of love can be punished, but in which Christ-exalting acts of love will be rewarded. And therefore, he, he knows that he's pushing up against the impossible. And so he says, I could wish in another world where biblical standards that presently exist wouldn't apply, there, if I could, I would. That's about the most ultimate thing he could say. He's protesting his intensity here. Why can't it be done? The reason is four verses earlier in 838 and 39, where it says, Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate God's elect from the love of God in Christ. You can't take anybody's place as much as you might be willing. You can't. God will never let anything separate his elect from him. God has not designed a world in which a person can be damned for love. I wish we had more of Paul's spirit. I wish I had more of Paul's spirit. Don't you wish you had more of Paul's spirit? Do you feel anguish over the lost, even in your own family? I know that hundreds of you do. Hundreds of you do. As my heart ached over Abraham, so I talked to many whose hearts ached and do ache 
over. Your children, your mother, your father, your uncle, your aunt, your brother, your sister, your old roommate from college. You ache, you groan, you pray, you feel anguish. But many of you don't feel any of that. And this sermon is designed, I pray, by the Spirit to awaken in you sorrow and grief and anguish over the lost people around you. And remember, Jesus said, don't just love those who love you back. Don't just greet those who greet you. Love your enemy. So it's the people at work who are unbelieving, who mistreat you, who say negative things about you, who who don't treat you justly in your employment. They're the ones you're also supposed to grieve over. It'd be like Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he's hanging on the cross. And you haven't hung on a cross yet. I want Bethlehem to be a place of spectacular joy and unceasing sorrow. If you say, in response to that longing of mine, that's emotionally impossible. I would simply direct you to 2 Corinthians 6.10, where Paul says, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If it's impossible, we'll do it. All things are possible. To God, God can create a congregation that is always rejoicing and always sorrowful. Sometimes the hands will be lifted in toe-tapping joy, and other times the tears will be flowing, and sometimes they will happen exactly at the same time, and we know that's real. You know it's real. You've experienced it. Many of you who are mature and have walked through life enough to know they come together. Let's keep them together. And if anyone should raise the legitimate question at this point, do you mean then that we will be sad throughout all eternity because there will be people in hell, even people that we have loved and grieved over? Will we be sad for all eternity because our loved ones and our enemies are in hell? The answer to that question is no. Because the Bible says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And if you say, how can that be? Let me read you a sentence from Jonathan Edwards that I think is right. With respect to any affection that the godly have had to the finally reprobate, the lost... With respect to any affection that the godly have had to the finally reprobate, the love of God will wholly swallow it up and cause it to wholly cease. That may feel emotionally impossible to you right now, and that's okay. That's okay. It will not be impossible for God to take from you all affection that you ever had
toward a loved one who finally, sinfully, and rebelliously rejects Christ. You will not be sad in heaven. Let's learn from Paul. He knows his kinsmen are lost. He knows they're about to be cast into outer darkness. He does not say with rage or fierceness, they're lost. He says, I have unceasing grief for my kinsmen according to the flesh and would, if I could, take their place. That's the way he says it. That's the way we should talk about it. Third, we've seen the cause of Paul's anguish, the intensity of Paul's anguish, and now thirdly, the authenticity of Paul's anguish. You see it in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is an introduction to what he's about to say in verse 2, namely, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. In other words, he's saying, when I tell you that I have sorrow and unceasing grief, when I tell you this, I'm not lying. What a remarkable thing. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me in Christ. Believe me in the Holy Spirit. He's calling God to witness. God the Son. God the Spirit. Witness. I mean what I say. Why? Because he can't prove it. You can't prove it. You can't prove your grief. Tears? Nothing. Tears can flow just like that for all kinds of carnal reasons. Trembling voice over somebody, you can manufacture that. There is no outward thing I could do to prove to you that I feel grief and longing over a lost person. All I can do is say, before God, I mean it. And that's all he said. Why? Why is he so worked up about his Authenticity. What is going on here? Don't you think the Romans trust you? No, they don't. Why don't they? Because he has said so many things that sound anti-Semitic. Chapter 2, verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jews. Chapter 3, verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he's about to say in verse 3, they're accursed, they're cut off from Christ. He's about to say in chapter 9, verse 6, that not all Israel is Israel. God has not ordained that the ethnic Israel be Coterminous with spiritual Israel. Some are passed over and left without salvation and others are saved and made the children of promise. And you claim to have grief over the lost? Jews? Unceasing anguish in your heart? I don't think so, Paul. So now we understand verse 1 a little better. The deepest reason why he has to take an oath is because he's telling them that 
God is going to pass over some of them and save only the elect. And they're saying, Paul, you can't feel real grief if you say God chooses freely and unconditionally whom he will save. You cannot feel authentic, real, deep grief over lost people and believe at the same time that God has chosen to pass over them and only save some. Now, beware, Bethlehem, beware of oversimplifying the heart of God. Beware of oversimplifying what is possible for God-indwelt saints to feel. You don't know what is possible for God to feel. You don't know what is possible for a spirit-filled God and trans-compassionate person to feel. If you say that. There are emotional possibilities in this world you have never dreamed. Paul set us an example here to follow. He taught in verse 15 that God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he showed us how to grieve over those on whom God does not have mercy. Beware of the reasonings of man exalted against the word of God. Beware of making your present emotional possibilities the standard of God's. Say it again. Beware of making your sense of your own present emotional possibilities. Beware of making that the standard by which you declare what is possible for God and his people to feel. Oh, how many people elevate their own emotional possibilities above the Bible and use it as a criterion to change what the Bible teaches. So, Paul's heartbrokenness was authentic. At least if you believe the Bible, it was. Finally, and lastly, the fruit of Paul's anguish. We've seen the cause of his anguish, the intensity of his anguish, the authenticity of his anguish. And now I'm going to jump to chapter 10 because I don't want to leave the heart of Paul without the action of Paul. The fruit of Paul's anguish. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The fruit of Paul's anguish was desire for them to be saved and prayer that they would be saved. O Bethlehem, I say it again. 
Don't follow the reasonings of skeptical men here. Don't say, there's no reason to pray for sinners if God is sovereign to save. Don't say that, Bethlehem. Say instead, because God is sovereign to save, I will pray with hope for sinners to be saved. Say rather, because Paul prayed for the salvation of Israel, I will pray for the salvation of Israel. Say rather, because Christ prayed for those who are crucifying him, I will pray for those who crucify him today afresh in their unbelief. Say rather, because I have grief and anguish in my heart, I will pray. And then, put your hope in this. 2 Timothy 2.25 God may perhaps grant them repentance. I pray, O oh God, for all of our children and for all of our brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and mothers and fathers, I pray, O oh God, that you would do Second Timothy 2.25. God may perhaps grant them repentance. O oh God, in this room right now, do it. If any of you is here and you feel yourself not so much grieving for others who are accursed and cut off from Christ, but you know yourself to be accursed and cut off from Christ. If there are any downtown who feel right now, I'm accursed and cut off from Christ because I haven't trusted Christ. I just offer again to you a curse bearer. Christ became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? That you might have the curse taken away this morning and hear those awesome words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I have two things. I prayed for them at the beginning. I pray for them as I end now. Bethlehem, let us come to Christ our sin bearer, our curse bearer, our righteousness, and take heart and hope in him as we trust him. And secondly, let our church be a church of joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy as we contemplate how many lost people there are in this city. Let's close. If you want to pray about a lost loved one, just get our arms around each other and pray for that person this morning. I mean, surely everybody knows somebody. I'd rather like a hundred people down here praying for lost people would be wonderful. Just Or just stay in your seats and pray that God would get them. Or if you want to pray about your own soul. So let's not let this morning pass without a heartfelt Romans 10.1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be. Say.